Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. Today we're talking with Jason Klein. He's the co-founder of Spiteful Brewery here in Chicago. Yeah, he's going to dive into a little bit of the history of how they all started. They had a wonderful 400 square foot facility that was in the cellar of an old factory. By some gin distillery too, and it sounded like they used to have a lot of fun together. I don't know if I would call it fun, but Jason will let us know if it was fun. Yeah, he's also going to tell us about how he sold beer, which was out of the ba- out of the back of a trunk, <laughs> as we think of it in the music industry as selling tapes out of your trunk. Yeah, it was a very DIY ethics mentality. Yeah, but it uh, it led them to great places, including a deal with one of the largest uh, beer wholesalers here in Chicago. So we're going to dive into uh, what it means to be DIY and beer, what it where they started at, and where it took them, and the fruits of your labor and what they give you. Let's do it. Let's dive and get heavy. Oh, for me. Oh, for you. Why, thank you. Oh, yeah. I I am working for the weekend. You are working for the weekend. We all are. I was going to say, everybody at one point. It's not actually based (laughs) off the song. It's just convenient that the song works. (laughs) So not Dolly Parton fans. I was talking about Loverboy. Oh, well, here we are. Could, could be. Working could be. nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same, right? <laughs> so, uh, Jason, thanks for joining us on Heavy Hops. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I think uh, we, we want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, Spiteful's past and being so- a little bit of a a DIY brewery in the sense of really the self-distribution I think is, uh, at the core of a lot of that. But first, I mean, let's talk a little bit about how you, uh, how you and Brad ended up together, uh, operating a brewery and a little bit about how you found craft beer. Yeah. So they actually go kind of hand in hand. Um, I've known Brad for years. We actually met playing hockey on a pond probably when we were nine. Um, it was like uh, the young kids versus the adults type type situation. And um, we kind of banded together, didn't know each other. And then <clears throat> to try to overcome and, and beat the adults that were trying to hot dog around uh, a bunch of kids. It's like, come on, guys, really? Um, and we, we won. And then I ended up actually playing hockey with Brad throughout high school. So we reconnected later on um, and became you know close friends and, you know, high school hockey. And then uh, beyond that, he actually went to Arizona for a bit where I went to high, uh, college. And then he transferred out to Boulder, and that's really where our story of craft beer would start, because in Boulder, that's what you do. You drink craft beer. And he came back to Chicago, and neither of us, like, he didn't want a desk job. I wasn't happy doing what I was doing, so we are like, let's, you know, start something together. Um, and then parallel to that, he had kind of was the guy. We were all drinking Miller Light, right, in High Life, and... Um, he would always order something different at the bar and we'd, you know, give him the look and it's like, really, come on, man. Like, why do you have to, you know, be a beer snob? <laughs> um, but slowly we, we figured it out and he introduced me to, to craft beer. And, uh, I think hop devil was actually one of the first, I mean, I knew about Sierra Nevada a lot and whatnot in college. That was like the fancy beer we would drink. Fat tire and Sierra Nevada were the two mm-hmm. beers in college we would drink, but it's not like we did that with any regularity. Um, I mean, Keystone lights were, were pretty cheap. That, so, definitely. Well, and it was Arizona too, right? Yeah. Right. What was the uh, timeline around when all this was going on? Just he for moved some back in, I want to say 2006 or seven. Okay. 
So it, uh, we started the company on paper in 2010. First delivery was 2012, but it had been happening before that a little bit. So I think 2009 is when we actually kind of kicked this off and decided to do something together. And we talked about opening a bar, realized quickly we have no idea how to run a bar, uh, did some back of the napkin math. Um, we, don't, we didn't have a million dollars for one, um, which is kind of what our guesstimate was to start something even not a great bar, just based on insurance, inventory, um, working capital to keep going on your slow nights. Um, mm -hmm. And we just had no industry experience, really. Um, Brad, a little bit, but n nothing actually management side. So we pivoted, and I come from manufacturing, and we both love beer, so we're like, well, let's, let's try starting a brewery. Um, had never brewed anything. Um, I think his aunt gave him, or someone gave him a book, How to Brew, by John Palmer, Great book. That's how we started. We read that. <laughs> um, went and got a kit, and we aggressively homebrewed for three years to just figure it out. Um, we approached homebrewing very differently with the end goal already in, in mind. So we, we took copious notes and detailed notes right from the beginning. Like we still have all of our recipes. Um, we started with a kit and then just progressed to you know all grain, to recipe development on our own, and just read along the way. And just a lot of self-taught um, brewing. Then Brad ended up volunteering over at Pipeworks, and that turned into a, a, a daily thing. He volunteered there for, it was probably like six months, while our equipment was on order, and it turned out to be an, a, a great thing because he learned how to go from the buckets at home to the you know fermentation vessels and whatnot, because it is very different. And that was helpful for us, and he did that with, with Drew, Drew Fox over 18th Street. So for a while, that, that was those guys were all making beer together. It was a pretty, pretty interesting time. And then I quit my corporate job in October, 2012 and and then we opened wow that's awesome so your experience in brewing really just comes from actually doing it there and a little bit of reading knowledge but a lot of it comes from just actual practical knowledge of doing it over and over again yeah for sure brad and i are good a good combo because he's got the practical side where he did it at pipeworks um and he still handles our brewing all of our brewing and and then i i do a lot of the book side of things but uh, we all know that books only take you so far so mm -hmm. combining what i read with his knowledge we we it, this is what we get <laughs> yeah um and uh this was to uh to frame this a little bit as well spiteful would have been one of the earlier kind of third wave breweries in chicago uh if you frame as metropolitan being one of the first ones uh, and a pipe works being another one, although there was a couple of years in difference, then mm -hmm. spiteful would have come not long, uh, after in that, uh, yeah, no, we, I think we were the ninth production brewery in the city somewhere in there. Um, I, I know beguile us and Lake effect all opened right about within a month of each other. And we were all about six to eight months behind Pipeworks. So it was within the same year. I think all of us opened. Gotcha. Uh, let's kind of talk about that first facility. I've been uh the beneficiary of hearing the stories of the cellar and basement of that first facility you want to kind of give insight to that sure spot? it's uh it was a lovely beautiful 400 square foot boiler room of an old i think bottling plant at one point um it was in ravenswood on berto berto and ravenswood and uh yeah it was it was affordable um i mean our original plan was to get a bunch of their blickman fermenters if anyone's familiar with those they're basically 31 gallon fermenters that are they're kind of like the micro machines of, of commercial fermenters they look the same but they're just smaller they don't act quite the same but they're close 
and we were going to get 13 of those and build a basically a, a cooler to ferment in because they're not temperature controlled with jackets like you see in, in most commercial breweries. Um, so, and we had a Sabco, which is like a, a, a keg homebrew system, a little fancy homebrew system. It's 15 gallons, uh, but it's got pumps and valves. So it's, it's a, again, the micro machine of commercial systems. And that was our plan. So 400 square feet was not great, but it, it worked. But then once Brad spent some time at Pipeworks, we kind of looked at what they were doing and they had a cycle brew three barrel, I believe. Uh, and we said, well, we could do that. So we ended up pivoting and going with a three barrel um, Portland Kettlework system. And then we had our own fermentation tanks that we kind of had to help with the design to get them in that 400 square feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a door width that they needed to fit through. And then we also had uh, our glycol jacket ports put either 180 degrees behind the manways or kicked off to the side based on where they were going. So we could push the fermenters up against the wall. So each tank actually had its very own spot in the brewery <laughs> to make it work with racking arms and uh, I'm sorry, with our CIP arms and whatnot on, on left or right sides, again, to maximize space. So the tanks would essentially touch, but we got it done. So we had seven five-barrel fermenters and a three-barrel system uh, initially, and then we ordered uh, some additional seven barrels. So all in, we had 12 tanks and the brew house in 400 square feet. And when you were brewing on a system of that size, were you producing predominantly the recipes that were the homebrew recipes that you described earlier? Or were you quickly adapting and realizing that some of these ideas didn't scale up uh, as it were? They were terrible ideas scaled up is what we learned uh, <laughs> for the most part. Uh, we, the first four to five recipes were actual scaled up directly from notes. Um, one of them was Bitter Biker, and we still love that beer. But what we learned was that when you put nine kinds of hops in, it doesn't really, you, know, you have diminishing returns. It doesn't really add anything. It's fun from a homebrew standpoint, but it, it commercially it was, a, it was a nightmare with inventory and just efficiencies. So we, we tweaked that recipe a number of times. We also learned that, you know, the grains, um, we kind of do simple is better philosophy with our recipes. And it, that kind of evolved out of learning how to do commercial brewing. So w- that was also the scariest thing, though, initially was when we had to come up with recipes based off the new system that weren't scaled up. And we didn't have our little security blanket of kind of knowing what to expect. Mm-hmm. So recipe development was a bit of a hurdle at first until we kind of built our confidence around it and said, we can do this. Cause we didn't have time to pilot batch this stuff. It was, no, we're going to make a big batch because that's all the time we have. We, if we're going to spend eight hours brewing, we might as well fill the tank. No, definitely. Um, did you wind up dumping a lot of beer because of this or was it just, um, you had to use the product that you use. So you had to push it out there kind of mentality. We, we didn't push out something we didn't stand behind, but we did not dump beer. Um, we actually, we almost dumped our very first batch. It was a GFY stout, which uses an Irish ale yeast, which doesn't drop out of suspension very quickly. And, and when you're home brewing, you don't taste beer generally as it's progressing because you don't risk opening the bucket or a carboy's a bitch to get beer out of anyway. So we had never really sampled a lot of beer in process, but with a sample valve, we could taste the beer every day if we want. So we didn't like it. We were doing that and it did not taste good. Um, mm-hmm. it, we, we were a little nervous and we almost, we got very close to dumping it. And then I, one day we came in and tried it and all the yeast had kind of dropped out and we're like, oh, this is what we were going for. <laughs> um, and that recipe's changed very little since batch one. I think all we've done is add oats. Um, and, so we, it was a, a little bit of a learning from that standpoint, but no, we didn't dump any big batches. We've only ever dumped, I think, two or three 
large batches where things just went wrong. One, we had a solenoid stick, and the beer actually tasted good. It was Spiteful IPA. The beer tasted good. It just fermented at like 80 degrees. <laughs> so it, it, it wasn't the same. So we could have mm-hmm. put a different label on it, but it, that, that's another, that takes time. Right. Um, and we couldn't give up. Like that tank had to get emptied so we could fill it back up. Um, and we, so we dumped that batch. That was, that, that hurt. Um, and then a, a few other ones, just quirky things that happened. But overall, we've, we've been pretty, I think, fortunate that we haven't had the dump a whole lot. Barrels are a different story, but everyone that fills barrels has that issue. So, mm-hmm. And early on, 22-ounce uh, bottles was a pretty standard medium for the small brewing class that you were a part of. Had to be, yeah. Um, couple, why, why did it have to be? Oh, yeah. So a couple things that we had to do there. Number one is the margin on a 22-ounce bottle is far superior to a multi-pack. Uh, we're charging 9 bucks for a single bottle of, of 22 ounces of beer versus today our IPA six-packs are 9 bucks. So just, just that alone, um, we needed as a small brewery to stay alive. Um, bombers were were the key to keeping your lights on. That and self-distribution, which I know we're going to touch on, but those, those two things really were necessary. And everybody was doing them, so the consumer was, was okay with it, right? Like we mm-hmm. got, I don't want to say we got a pass, but I don't think that would work today. Um, if we were to start Spiteful today with that same model, I think we'd struggle because bombers, no one's buying bombers. Um, totally. I mean, I remember between us and Pipeworks, Beguile, and I think even Lake Effect, I think 18th Street, as well, like there was a whole, there's like 40 feet of shelving at Binnings that was all <laughs> bombers from us little guys, uh-huh. uh, which was cool, actually. I think it was fun for the consumer, too. To, uh, you, you could try anything, and we all brewed similar styles because nobody could really do lagers at that point for the same reason. Lagers take longer to make, and, and we didn't have the tank time, so to speak, to focus on lagers. Um, so it was good to, it was a nice little fun club that lasted for as long as it did until people stopped buying bombers. Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually, early on, uh, before we closed out our first year, we had switched to six packs because we'd always wanted beer in six packs. Um, so we actually bought a canning line that would fit on this little table we're all sitting at. This actually would have been a luxury size table for that canning line. <laughs> um, and we filled them one by one by hand um, and early on in like, I think it was late August, early September of 2013. And that was an important milestone for our brewery because it set us up for where we are today. So we got in the cooler slots and stores because we, there were, I think the only people canning at that time were Rev, Half Acre, and Finch, um, and then us. So uh, at least city proper breweries. Um, so we were early, and now everyone laughed at us for, actually I have two of the three beers I brought with us today have labels on them, and we got laughed at for that. Um, and now that seems to be the norm, which is, which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. But uh, for those who can't see, which is... Everyone Everybody. who isn't at yeah. this table, he's talking about uh, the wrapping around the cans. It's uh, basically a sticker that you put yes. on. A, is it on the canning line now? I can't. No, we were hand doing them. <laughs> we were hand doing them. Yeah. But I'm happy to report as of about a month ago, it's now part of the canning line. Woo! So up until literally June of this year, we still hand labeled every single can, um, which sucked. But yeah. um, we, we now have an inline labeler. So um, you could are, call things, it a labor of love. <laughs> it was certainly was, but Hey, it worked, right? So like totally. we couldn't buy printed cans to buy printed cans for, for people who don't know, you need to essentially buy 195,000 of them, which when you're a brewery, that's making 10,000 cases a year at our peak. Um, when we were in that small basement, 
which is like 800 barrels, which is nothing. Um, you would have filled that space with just those empty cans. Oh, yeah, at least. And your and, neighbors, yeah. And our neighbors. And it would have been like 10 years worth of inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so we had no choice but to buy what we call brights or blanks, um, which is a silver can that you can, you know, we could buy a pallet of 12-ounce cans and turn that into six beers, um, which we still do. So um, mm-hmm. it was it was a good move on our part, I think, to get in early and kind of learn labeling and and figuring all that out. And here we are still doing it almost eight years later. It's pretty insane. I remember as a retailer, there was a prevailing perspective that you looked that you actually looked down on people that did that because that was a step away from homebrew and that together with producing in a really small basement, there was a notion among retailers that, hey, this is homebrew and this is it literally looks like homebrew. Yeah. Yeah. People ask us all the time. They're like, so you like you guys do this where? Um, a common question we got was, was, you know, is this just brewed in your home? Which no, uh, that's not actually legal. Um, it, it's legal to homebrew. It's not legal to homebrew and then sell it commercially. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get licensed in a, in a residential area. So no, it's not out of our home or our garage. And the other question was, so like, what do you guys do for your day jobs? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like this, this, this is what we do. <laughs> like, it's not a hobby. Uh-huh. But there must have been a positive reception at the same time, too, from retailers. I mean, you built really strong relationships with people uh, in those early phases. We did, yeah. It was, it was good to have the package, and people tried it, and we were able to earn the respect to put things on the shelves. So I think all of us small breweries at the time did a really good job with quality, and, and we all earned our place at those stores. I mean, people want to support you because you're local too, right? There's always some of that. But if, it, if, if we all weren't making good beer, I don't think we would have stayed there. And if you look, most of us are still around, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty awesome. Um, some of us have grown and contracted in various ways, and, and, but everyone's pretty much still here. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we had tremendous support from, from not only retailers, but on-premise bars and restaurants. Everybody wanted to support us. You had to give people a reason to not want to at least give you a shot. Mm-hmm. So in those early days, how did you go about getting the word out about your brewery? Was it you and Brad going out and physically being there in person or... What, what was kind of the method? That was tough, actually, because it was just two of us for a while. And um, we quickly learned divide and conquer exists for a reason. Um, I, I like to stay, I wanted to stay involved with brewing as much as I could. But the reality was we could not have two people doing that. Mm-hmm. So, and Brad really had the expertise anyways coming from, from Pipeworks. So um, we, he quickly kind of moved towards the operation side. And then I moved over to kind of the more distribution um, sales and I wouldn't even call it marketing. Um, I'll just call it logistics. Um, Mm -hmm. And we would literally mash in at eight o'clock in the morning. Two of us, I would, I'd paddle, he'd dump or vice versa. And then I'd go do two hours of deliveries, come back, mash in the second turn and then go back out. And that's how we did it for a while um, until we kind of figured out a rhythm and actually got big enough to bring some people on to help us. Um, It was you know, labor of love you mentioned earlier, and that's that's what we did. And it was it was going to stores. We didn't do a whole lot of bars um, for that reason. We we didn't have a market presence. It was hard to go. It it takes time to sell beer in the bars. A lot more time than it does at retail. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. But but 
the on-premise is, is a different battlefield than retail. So we were 97, 95, 97% retail for mm -hmm. most of our existence until we expanded. Um, we had our bars that, I mean, that's actually where I met Alexi. We, um, we had a few bars that we would sell to, but they were few. Mm -hmm. And it was people that we knew who knew our situation so we could get in and get out. Like we don't have time to wait in line with the rest of the beer reps because I, I'm not there selling beer. I'm there delivering beer and invoicing and collecting a check. And then, and then also telling you about what's coming next. Mm -hmm. um, so that was challenging. Uh, that's, which is why we stuck so much to retail. Um, the retail stuff, Binnie's was always really good to us. The independence in our neighborhood, bottles and cans, uh, beer temple, um, all of those types of stores like really wanted to support us and help us and anyone around the brewery, especially it was, it was great. Everybody understood. We'd come in, we'd talk about the beer. They were excited to bring it in. It was made down the street. Um, we existed on those relationships. Definitely. Let's, uh, and kinda, so, uh, oh, oh, sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> so focusing on a uh, package with a limited amount of, uh, draft accounts allowed you to kind of also control and manage the sales versus production expectations. Yeah, absolutely. We were small enough where we we designed that business to sell out, right? We could not carry inventory. We we don't have a cool. We had chest freezers, which were for hops and yeast, not for extra cases that didn't sell. So we couldn't leave our beer cold. So we didn't want to sit on it. We didn't have space to sit on it. We would have had to stop brewing if it wasn't moving, and we couldn't stop brewing to keep the lights on. So mm -hmm. you're caught in a game of selling out making enough different products where the pull is still there. Cause if you just make, you know, working for the weekend, the can we started with, which is one of our core products, every batch, obviously there's going to be too much of that. Um, mm -hmm. cause there's only, we only had, I think we ended with about 75 accounts when we, before we switched to a distributor. Um, and that wasn't even, they didn't even all get all the beer. Most of that was in the city, which is about 40 accounts. Um, but we wanted to, there was a reason we had a small account base. It's because we had our runs and that's all we had time for. We didn't have time to drive all over the state and deliver beer. So the account runs were specific to geography <laughs> and, and people we had relationships with and, and just the amount of beer we could make. So we, it made planning easy in some respect because we knew, okay, every week we need an IPA every week. We need an IPA and alley time and a goddamn pigeon porter. Like we know that those three every week we're gonna need because we were only doing, you know, 50 to 90 cases a batch when we had our seven barrels finally online. So you're not talking about a lot of beer. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, working for the weekend since you mentioned it and it's in our glasses. There's something that is very, uh, I don't want to say stuck in time, but there's something about the flavor profile of this beer that reminds me of a very specific time and a specific like kind of construction of the style. Can you talk a little bit about uh, this recipe and uh, do you agree with me or disagree? I, I agree. <laughs> um, it, it is, I, I don't, I don't want to say it's stuck in time, it's timeless. Um, it's timeless. Oh. It's, it, it is in, in some respect. It's, a, it's, it's very much a, when we came out of the scene, it, this was all the rage, right? Like you're more West coast style, um, more bitter than anything else, which I, th this is actually more balanced than I would say a typical West coast IPA is, but the, the construction of the recipe is very similar. It's, it's all Pacific Northwest hops. It's mosaic, it's citra. Um, the, the, the one thing that's a little bit different about this beer than your typical West Coast IPAs is we use Maris Otter as our base malt, which is one of my favorites. 
And I think it just gives it a bit more of a round, like more layered flavor profile that you would get from a straight two row, uh, which is why we chose it. But this beer is, is it's American ale yeast. I mean, it's, it's just shy of a, of a traditional West coast IPA. And I think that's where you're maybe coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think the, definitely the flavor profile, the Pacific Northwest hops, um, the sea hops in particular, I definitely got some of that and the, the bitterness as well. Uh, being a big component of it and the sweeter like slightly sweeter malt profile too um i do agree that the use of maris is uh, is unique and also just there's not a lot of oats in this beer which i think is a little more of a contemporary thing and you're not using excuse me oats in that in this beer i assume yeah no we don't generally use those for ipas (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who uses oats and ipas these days i have opinions if we want to get to oh later, we will but yeah <laughs> yeah so um what were you gonna ask sam well i actually wanted to dive into the beer but we uh we arrived there is there any more left in that can for the old guy over here no, no. Oh, cool. but i brought more than one oh, more than excellent one. so this beer um little sidebar it's actually based off off my wedding beer um which was not a double ipa that would have been a nightmare um, it was a, I think it was around 5% pale ale, but same, same idea with the base malt being Maris Otter and a little bit of the, those sea hops. Um, we do like those hops. There is Centennial in this beer as well. Um, but it's dry hopped with mosaic and citra. But there's just something about this beer that I, it has a dryness quality to it on the finish, which to me makes it a very drinkable double. Um, you can get into trouble with this beer, I think, um, compared to some of the other doubles because the alcohol is slightly, you know, hidden. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's got a, for, for as big of a beer as it is, to, it's, it's actually kind of refreshing. Yeah, 7.9% is a, uh, it's definitely a tightrope for the consumer too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, honestly, that wasn't a planned out, uh, initially with our recipes, we, we would, we, we have a target in mind, but if it doesn't hit it, that's fine. We just put what it is. Um, so this wasn't, I think our target for this was like eight, one or eight, two probably. And it landed at seven, nine and we're like, okay, seven, nine it is. And it turned out to be a really nice accident because um, it does kind of toe the line. Once you get above eight, it's kind of like a price, right? Like $10 is much worse than nine ninety nine for some reason, psychologically. <laughs> yeah. Um, same thing with, with the ABV. And I think that this is a, an approachable double from not just the, way it drinks but the the abv definitely how long did it take you before you needed a new facility and what kind of occurred to make you want one or need one uh the first day we brewed we knew we needed a new facility <laughs> when we moved into the old one <laughs> but no it was always a stepping stone that place was never going to be scalable we knew that um i mean we used to drive the cars down a ramp to load the cases and drive out. It was a shared building, so the forklift wasn't always available. People put their shit in the way all the time. Like, it, it wasn't always great when you're trying to be efficient to work with other people. I think we've all experienced that. Um, and, and not to say that we didn't have good neighbors. We, we did. It's just it's, when everyone's living in the same space, you know, you're not always on the same page. Um, so we always knew eventually we'd want to get bigger. I'd say after about two about three years we figured out all right this is gonna work we've we've survived this long like we could actually scale this up and that's kind of when our search began it took a long time though 
to find a building that was suitable for larger scale brewing is not that simple as it turns out. Um, it's a, the rent in our current space was like 500 bucks. So that was nice. Um, and it escalated from there when we took over additional spaces in that building, but we're still not talking about a lot of money. So our overhead was essentially nothing and that, that changed overnight. And then trying to find some, a space with tall enough ceilings to actually get the tanks in is also challenging because we need, you know, 20 foot ceilings to get these tanks in. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that process was frustrating and took some time. And then beyond that, it's getting everything else on order. Your equipment delete times are all long for all that stuff. So, um, I think it was six years before we finally settled into our, our new facility that we're at now on Balmoral. And, um, and oh. no, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, so when you moved to this new facility, did you, were you immediately welcomed by the neighborhood? Uh, were you received with open arms or was there kind of a building of trust between you and the local community? 98% of the community welcomed us with open arms, but all that credit I think has to go to half acre because we're next door to them. So they probably did all the hard work and heavy, heavy lifting of, of, Hey, we're a brewery, not a bar. Here's what this is about. And their massive production facility is next to ours. So, the neighborhood was well versed on what what does that smell like what mm-hmm. what's the traffic going to look like uh, so we didn't have a lot to do to convince people they're like oh another brewery great mm-hmm. so that part wasn't so bad yeah so you do you find on a typical evening that you get a really good draw of the local community or is it a lot of people traveling from further locations too it, it's a nice mix of both we we i'd say we probably are more local um we get a lot of we try to be the corner tavern without the tavern right because mm-hmm. we can't sell that um but it's a relaxed atmosphere it's we try not to be pretentious there's a lot of negative connotations with people who aren't into craft beer about craft beer i know this because i had them and when i made fun of brad for drinking it um <laughs> we don't want that um we want people of all beer drinking levels of experience to come and have a good time so if you are a hardcore beer enthusiast um, yeah, we've got some beers that I think you'll like, like our, our Goza that with, with guava in it, um, our tr- truly classical styles, which we're going to have one of these. We have our Pilsner with us today. Um, and, but then we also have the hops for the people that are just kind of getting into IPAs and all levels of IPAs, right? We've got our double, we've got our regular IPA, our house pale. Um, we have a new IPA out that's 4%, which I, I'm drinking quite a bit of. Um, so we try to have something for everybody, which I think kind of lends the atmosphere to be a little bit more relaxed and less beer focused, even though that's the only thing we serve. Mm -hmm. When you moved to your new facility, obviously you brought quite a few beers with you from, uh, from the old facility. Uh, Did a good number of them make sense in the new facility and uh, like talk a little bit about the decisions that you made of what to make now that you, well, you could make beer at the same scale you did before because you brought your old equipment, right. but you also had new equipment that you could bring in. And how many of those choices uh, were commercial versus personal? I'd say most of them have been personal and they just end up being commercial because we still tend to brew what we as brewers want to drink. We're still small enough where that holds true. Um, Anything at, at large scale distribution obviously gets made on our, our bigger tanks. Um, we, we do have two systems. We have a 30 barrel brew house and a three barrel. And it's a factor of 10 basically even with our tanks, right? Because we've got fives and sevens from the old facility and 60s and the, the new one. So um, 
there are decisions that have to be made on a commercial um, basis for what goes in the 60s because we do need to sell it. Uh, so like our pills, I would love to put in a 60, but we aren't commercially there yet. Um, the tank times are long and, and it's a big commitment with cans and everything else. Well, now that we have a labeler, maybe it's not a big deal. But, <laughs> um, and so a l we, we did about 107 different lab bombers, I think, in cans between the two when we were in, in our, our original facility, which is a quite a, a, um, a list to pick from. Not all of them have made it back, um, but many of them in some form or another have kind of made their appearance. We have 16 draft lines, so we do get to keep a nice, diverse set of styles which is great, but the other thing that we've been able to do now with the small system that we couldn't do in the past is we don't have to rely on those tanks to come up and come down every week. Um, we can make loggers. So that's what we kind of started doing, playing around with really classic styles that from a commercial standpoint don't make sense. Um, you know, your, your, your brown ales, um, which Alexi and I have, have an appreciation for, but we, we both know you, you can't make 800 cases of that because <laughs> um, we can't drink them all. And certain styles just don't do as well um, commercially, but we can still make them, which is great. And now that we do have that labeler, not only can we make them and serve them on draft, but with COVID obviously happening, draft went away, we, we canned everything. Mm -hmm. So every batch of beer we make, we now put in cans, which is why we needed to get a labeler right. or our arms were going to fall off. But <laughs> um, that's been a really kind of, a, if you have to look for a silver lining out of all this, it forced our hand to finally just commit to doing that. So we sometimes have more than 20 canned beers available at the brewery. Amazing. Yeah. And so having this, uh, bringing your old, your old kit basically, or the last kit from the old facility over, um, allowed for a pretty smooth transition into making what for most people is uh, almost a 10 times size jump, right? Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was scary. We had never brewed on equipment that big, um, but we believed in our process and we believed that, you know, we know what we're doing in terms of like, we've proved that like our beer is pretty consistent coming off a three barrel with small fermenters. It should only get more consistent with more tools at our disposal. I always like to say if we're in the brewery, like this is our art, and this is our science. But in, in reality, the, the art, the three barrel was very scientifically based because Brad was and Andy actually, who's now at Rev, but um, they were the only two people making beer. So it, consistency was not an issue for us, which I think for some small breweries it can be. But the way Brad sets up the process, we do the same thing the same way every time. So when you take those good habits and apply them to the bigger system where now you've got more control, uh, we can control our strike temperature exactly the way we want it whereas you know before you're you're you got a swing you're a plus minus um the the knockout temperature we used to use city water so it's like all right well in the summer knockout was longer um now we have a cold liquor tank so our knockouts are the same every single time so we've only gotten better from a consistency standpoint on the big system so once you got over that initial hump of a couple batches under your belt and you're moving a lot of liquid i mean it's it's if you if you make a mistake that's a big expensive mistake <laughs> and it's more dangerous, right? Like you were talking about hundreds of gallons of hot liquid versus a, a pot that is big, right? But mm -hmm. you know, 150 gallons you can get out of the way of if you need to, um, boil overs are, are manageable, but on a, on a, on a 30 barrel kettle boil over is a big deal and can, can kill you. So, mm -hmm. um, a, a little more respect with the bigger stuff, but as long as we brought our good habits, we didn't really have much of an issue. Let's enjoy some of the uh, 
some uh, of the art of Pilsner. Ooh, that sounds nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I'm not sharing this can. I'm getting ready. <laughs> I think we're all I think, our uh, own here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why there's three. These are great glasses. They are pretty good. Polished and washed. Polished before and washed every before episode. every every before and after every guest. <laughs> so making classic styles, how at what point did that kind of come along for uh, for spiteful? It's always been the backbone of how we develop recipes. Um, I spent a lot of time reading the books about classic styles, designing great beers. Um, those, those types of books to kind of understand how to make those before you make some of the in things that are being made today. Um, it, it's easy to make certain styles of beer when you're just throwing flavor after flavor in, in, into it. Um, maybe easy is not a fair word. It, it's, it's, There's a, it's a different kind of challenge. Yes, exactly. Because you do need to manage those ingredients, right? It's not like mm -hmm. you push a button and it comes out faster. But it, it is, it's <laughs> not subtle at all, right? Right. Like you're throwing whatever it is in someone's face and that's all they taste. And like that's a way to make beer. Um, but I forget what book it was that I read it, but... It was, I keep doing that clicking thing. I'll stop. Uh, <laughs> it, whatever book it was, it said master the classics first. And in, the, in, in, the, in this case, they were like, don't go make a double IPA. Uh -huh. um, they're like, make a pale ale. That was the example from the book that I remember. Um, it's crazy to think of a double IPA as like a complex or crazy style of beer. But that's what it was in the book. So we've always kind of used that as a guiding light when we put things together very few times that we go over four grains. Um, I just don't think it's necessary. Um, simple usually wins. I think it's that way in cooking. I'm not a chef by any means, but I feel like I watch enough um, chef shows on TV to see that the ones that do the simple recipes usually do better. Um, and I think it's the same with beer. Simple generally works out better. So although we didn't make these styles like a, like a classic pills when we were able to finally do it we already kind of had that foundation of building off of classic recipes although instead of pails now we applied that same principle to to loggers and it's been it's been really nice has any of the uh opportunities that you've identified with uh classic styles come with uh with the shift in some small ways of new beer drinkers recognizing classic styles in some way I know that we're not going to have a full recognition of classic styles, but speaking specifically about pills, Hellas, lagers. No, we have to do a lot of educating between those specific styles because we actually rotate pills and Hellas um, with the same yeast strain. And it's, they're different. Um, and it's actually the fun part about being behind the bar is getting to talk to people about why they're different. Mm -hmm. And people are interested. We, we actually rotate a Vienna lager in that to complete a three- set to try to maximize our yeast usage and they're all really different beers and it's a lot of fun to to taste through those I, I think we do see because we do draw from that local crowd we do see people that expect your older style of beers that will never come in and drink a double ipa much less any of the insane stuff that other people are doing um they want this uh so it's been great to finally give them that but at the same time i don't think new drinkers are coming in 
looking for classic styles. They're coming and looking for hazies and pastries and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. in general. Definitely. Um, but I, but at the same time, th- those people that drink those all appreciate these. Mm-hmm. And we find that a lot of times someone will order one newer style, but they always back it up with something classic, which is, we love seeing that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I was identifying with in a way is that more the proclivity to taste the rainbow all the time <laughs> is, uh, has diminished in some sense to where people may be tired of billions of flavors. And when I say people, I don't mean like the, I mean, even the tickers to a certain extent, they may want to try a lot of different things, but when they actually drink 16 ounces of beer, more often than not, it's something that looks a little more like Pilsner than uh, a pastry stout. Yeah, what's in your glass when you're not on Instagram? That's what I want to know from all those people. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. W- with that, with that, uh, and you mo- and your move to a new facility. At what point did uh, and having a wholesaler come into the picture, and did it match the style of production and the style of business that would come about in new facility? So we didn't know the answer to that second part of your question at first, but the first part of the question is before we even built that facility, we, we had figured out who we were going with. Um, no desire to take the self-distribution model to the larger scale. Um, there's a lot of pros and cons either way, and everybody makes their own decision for them, but Brad and I never wanted to run a distribution company. Um, we had to. We did it out of necessity. Now, that being said, I, I think every small brewery should do it. If, even if you want to go into distribution because it teaches you and prepares you for things that you'll never get a chance to fully learn or it will take years to learn if you start with a wholesaler. I think it puts us in an advantage with our wholesaler because we've done it. Um, it also allows you to see through any bullshit because you've done it. <laughs> um, we don't really have a lot of those issues, but like if everybody does with the distributor and if something comes up and it's like, no, that, like we, we've literally done that job. So it's, it's, let's move beyond you telling me that and let's find a solution. So it's helpful in that sense. Um, but once we decided to scale up, we, it, was, it was either sign or buy t- you know, five more trucks, hire five more people. And like, there's a lot of complexity that gets added to your business. It's really a second business. Um, Garrett will tell you that all the time from Pipeworks and he's right. I mean, it's, it's it's not an extension of your brewery. It's a totally separate business, especially at the scale that they're doing it at. And we just didn't, we wanted to focus on making beer and then having the bar open and then letting other people deliver our beer. Um, the model exists and it works for a reason. It's not, it's not a cut in your, in your profit as bad as everybody likes to present it as because you have all those other costs of trucks and drivers and insurance and um, those are real costs. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not 30% off the top or whatever your deal is with your distributor that's just gone. It, that's a false way to look at it. It's, it's you're truly, if you look at the true cost, they're probably pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a difference, obviously, in control. Right, and uh, that's what it comes down to is controlling everything. Yeah, and that, that was tough and still is tough just because we had 100% control. If someone had a problem on a Sunday afternoon with a case, we'd go fix it because we could. Mm-hmm. That does not happen with uh, probably hardly any distributors um, anywhere in the country, unless they're, you know, no one has seven seven days a week support. But we did, and we, you know, a lot of bars are busy on the weekends, so mm-hmm. 
that's when you would need to do more of your emergency type type situations and fix it problems. Oh, you need a oh that you need a ke- you just ran out and you forgot to order. Yeah, I can bring you a keg, no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do miss that, but uh, again, it's a choice: control versus you know, what's your comfort level with losing control, or, or or some people don't even start with the control to begin with, and then they don't even notice. But did having uh, did having a history of uh, self distribution uh, give you any leverage at a point with discussion of your, uh, with your wholesalers, with the wholesalers that you were interested in or anyone that you were courting? I, I think it got us to the table. Um, because at that point we had an established brand. They didn't have to build a brand. Um, so yeah, I think it got us meetings that at the time we decided to finally expand. I believe there were so many new breweries coming up that not everybody was even getting offered a meeting with distributors. Um, Nobody wouldn't take a meeting with us. In fact, we didn't take meetings with some distributors, and and I, I don't think that would happen today, um, or would I? Even, or even then, had we not been in the market for five years, building a brand. So yeah, I think it provided leverage. It gave us choice, right? Like we didn't have to go with someone that was the only person that would talk to us, and like they couldn't tell us, well, we will only take you for draft right now, and then maybe we'll talk about package later. I've heard stories of of those examples. Um, we, you know, we, we, we interviewed a number of distributors and made a choice and, and started, started just selling beer. And we didn't have the distraction of trying to educate the distributor really on why they need to take us or what we, what we're going to do, right? Everyone's projections look great because they're just projections. Like we actually had sales history. Uh Uh-huh. So have, uh, after signing with a distributor, have any practices changed on your end from production or even marketing um, now that you're working with a distributor? Or have you maintained the same kind of practices since then? Production's fairly similar. Um, I, we manage our production based on inventory, so I don't wait for them to place an order. I, we try to be ahead of it and say, here's what you will need, um, which I think any, any brewery would do because um, you can't wait for orders. Um, if you're waiting for orders, then you're probably not gonna be open that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we know what needs to happen, but from production standpoint, it, it looks pretty similar, but from a sales and marketing standpoint, it's way different, right? Like now we're working with, I mean, in, in our sense, we're with breakthrough, right? And there's hundreds of people that sell our beer, not as their primary job, right? Like there's a beer division at Breakthrough that that is their primary job, but they're huge. And anyone, most of their reps can sell a beer if they want to, as long as it doesn't cross over with another person's territory. So there's people that sell our beer that we've never met, which is a little different, right? Like they're they're not your Miller or your Bud distributors, which would look a lot different. Mm -hmm. Um, But so educating people on how to sell our beer when they have a full book of not only just other beer to sell, but also wine and spirits, that's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been different. We have to kind of customize our our sell materials based on who, which group under Breakthrough is getting it, right? So if right. it's someone that's predominantly wine and spirits, the, 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 the sell sheet looks different than someone that sells beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had to learn to, to work with that. Uh, I think Breakthrough is the only one that sells both. Maybe there's a couple small no, there are, there, So you have Windy City that sells, uh, there are wholesalers that sell. They're uh, selling spirits? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Windy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Oh. And I think uh, Chicago Beverage uh, has spirits as well. Um, Southern dipped into beer too now, didn't they? They may have beer. I think so. It, it's not an unusual thing. Uh, Lakeshore has, uh, I know, wine as well. And so there, uh, you're seeing wholesalers diversify. Mm-hmm. Uh, Definitely. Out. But no one has done it to the point of breakthrough because unlike all of those, they started with spirits right. and, then, mm-hmm. and then went into uh, beer. And so do you think that your experience in working with the wholesale and, you know, to be forthright, uh, spirits is what they do more than beer. Yes. If you look at the number and you look at the brands and the notoriety, um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you as a beer brand, now you are one of the stronger beer brands that they have at this point being both local and seeing the growth that you've had, uh, you've done pretty well with their stewardship. Uh, and with your own growth as well, what uh, what are some of these adaptations that uh, that you have to do to work with that knowledge in mind? It's it's really just providing the the sales folks over there with with easy, clear points of selling, right? Like we're local, right? That's the obvious one, but we're not the only local brand in their book. So, um, what what is it about? They're so folks, some of the reps are so, I mean, I'm talking about non-beer reps, right? Like the beer reps are beer reps and that's not really any different than any other distributor. But when you're talking about what we call, what they call balance a house and your, your liquor and your wine reps that also have beer, it's, it's how, do you get, how do you get them to think about beer? Because they're going into account for years and it's, it's liquor and wine, right? So how do you get them to also like think about the beer? And so that part's a little bit challenging. Um, and we, we, we take that challenge on by trying to be very just clear in our approach. Don't, don't sell every product that we have in the warehouse, right? Like here's the four core products that you need to lead with or even just mention when you're there. And that usually opens a door. And then what we do on the back end is Calvin's out there um, everywhere, literally running around. And he follows up and he hits new accounts and he works really closely with anyone at Breakthrough to try to come in and, and it, if they don't know necessarily the ins and outs of beer, but they can get Calvin in the door, well then we'll take care of the beer part. Like just get us there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a lot of that like partnership stuff. Like we really do work well with, with them as a partner. Um, our relationship has been like that from the beginning, which is partly why we went with them. Um, Cause that was talked about from the beginning and we've done a good job, I think of, of, doing that and, and and they treat us that way we treat them that way as, as opposed to a, a hostile wholesaler supplier relationship which you see a lot actually all over the country especially with the smaller guys uh, us being the small guy not breakthrough <laughs> and um they they have they've held true they told me they were a large company that acts small and they've for the most part held very true to that i i think so it's been we haven't had a lot of issues um no come to jesus meetings or anything like that <laughs> Uh, did your commitment to selling, uh, within Illinois only, was that something that came before, uh, signing with a wholesaler or was that something that you decided now that you've been in your facility for a little while? It actually came before, um, Brad and I have always thought there's until you're totally saturated here. Why spend energy outside of here? And I I know you could argue the, the pros and cons of that. Um, so the cows come home, but that was the choice we made and we've stuck with it. I mean, New Glarus, they don't sell anywhere else. And they're a top 20 brewery in the country. I think they're up there. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, 
done it, so it's doable. Um, we didn't want to be distracted by other states when we had so much work to do with Breakthrough, and we still feel that way. We still feel like there's a lot of places we can get into here that would be better for the for our product than, you know, Milwaukee has a lot of great breweries, it turns out, um, and, and so does Indy, and so does St. Louis. So how much non, when you guys travel, how much non-local beer do you drink? None. I mean, the goal is when you're in it. For me, when I travel, the goal is to not only consume beverage local, but also food that's locally as yeah. much as you can locally sourced food. And that's stuff the like fun that. part, right? Exactly. You want to enjoy what you can't get at home. 90% of the time you can get most of the things that you would look forward to uh at, there there are what i'm saying is there are examples <laughs> of things if i go somewhere i get stoked about a certain belgian beer that may not be coming to chicago but mm. that's a small that's the 10 percent right, the 90 yeah. percent but right. uh in a sense that's also part of what makes that market unique too right yeah because you mm -hmm. still can't get it it's still something you can't get home yeah like home, why right? would i go to philly and enjoy russian river well that that's <laughs> a great example you would because you can't get it here. exactly so but but i that's i'll tell you the time, last yeah. time i was in new york um, I went to the little bodega and nothing against these breweries for being there, but like half of them were Chicago breweries. And I was mm -hmm. like, I was so excited to try some of these smaller, like breweries you read about in New York. And th this particular place near where we stayed had none of them, right? Like it's, it's Lagunitas. Got that revolution. Got that two brothers. Got that. Um, so I, I had zero incentive to, to buy those. Um, and I was a little disappointed, but I mean, not everyone's a traveler either, right? So you could, there's people in other states that would buy our beer. I, I don't, I'm not saying that that wouldn't happen. I just, until we completely feel like we've done enough work here, we, I don't see any reason to, for us to jump out. We're not big enough, right? So if we're mm -hmm. gonna go somewhere to another market, you have to support that market, which totally. usually means bodies. At the very least, it means commitments to cases, which, which we're close right now to, like if we were to pick up a, a, someone and it took off, let's say somebody needs, you know, 300 cases of IPA a month, like that's a, that's going to be a struggle for us. So yeah. if we, I, the last thing we want to do is go into another market and then not supply it. That's not going to make any wholesaler happy. Right. So we have to be very careful in making sure that if, and when we ever do leave, um, we can do it right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I want to like rewind a little bit, actually. Yeah, I do too. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> who who gets the rewind? Ooh, let's do two rewinds. All right, all right. You can rewind first. Um, let's rewind to that bodega in New York. Um, do you? When I shop in Chicago for beer, I typically lean towards unless if it's something I really can't get here, like lambic or other specific Belgian styles of beer. I typically lean towards Chicago breweries. Um, do you feel like in your short time being in New York that that's not really the general beer goers experience? Or do you feel like you would fare well in somewhere like New York in a market that's already saturated with New York beers, but also Chicago Other beers? Chicago beers? Yeah. I, I think we would do well initially, like anyone new would, because um, there's that novelty of being new and exciting and something on the shelf that the consumer hasn't seen before. But what's the incentive other than great beer, which all those breweries I mentioned, we all make good beer, right? So like, that's not the issue. Hopefully, otherwise your wholesaler won't 
bring you on. But so you have to assume that everyone's making good beer or great beer. So outside of that, what, what is the incentive for the person that's going down and buying that new shiny thing on the shelf to keep buying our beer? I, I don't know how it would happen. We, we fight that battle here, mm. much less outside of our state. So I, I don't know that like the common beer drinker in New York is going to have their go-tos and then have the things that they want to try. And I don't know where Spiteful would fit into that if we were to go. We'd be in the new side initially, but I don't know where, what the long-term um, results would be for that. So that would... That's concern, and the, you fight that by having someone there selling your beer other than your wholesaler, and that's a huge commitment. I mean, you need a massive amount of cases moving in a territory to justify a body there. So mm-hmm. until that happens, um, I don't see us kind of doing that. Now, there's a splash market type um, strategy that can work too, and that's exciting, and that's the way you keep it new and exciting and fresh and don't need to dedicate a salesperson there because you can, you know, once – every three, once a quarter, right? Spiteful goes to St. Louis. Um, that's a strategy that could work without having to commit to being there full time. There's all sorts of layers in there and I just don't, I haven't thought about it enough really to answer your question, to know what the expectations would be because we're, that's why we're not there because we don't right. want to be distracted by it. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the splash market notion is based around the fact that you may have 10 to 15 really ridiculously strong relationships that transcend business that are like uh, personal or family that are in the industry and you think, or that are just like a ridiculous enthusiast and you think, okay, I'm going to do something special for them. And Mm -hmm. that's really, uh, I mean, that's the impetus for a lot of really small breweries that can't expand in their own markets in the U.S. sending beer to Europe as well. Which we've done, actually. Um, I remember. Yeah. I've, I've seen those <laughs> bottles at the McKellar and Friends. And that's uh, cool. Yeah. And it's a cool thing for us, right? Like, to see someone check in on Untapped in Europe, it's like, wow, that's awesome. Like, people are enjoying our beer over there. And so I, I think a splash market would be a more of a, a, a reality for us, really, because we couldn't support a full move to a new state to do it the way we want to do it. Um, but even with that being said, it's you have all those franchise laws and whatnot with wholesalers, which for people who don't know, you could it's, every state has their own set of rules for for distribution. And if you you could sign a deal with a distributor, even if you're only going to give them one pallet of beer, they own your brand for life. Um, it's certainly that way in Illinois. So I, I actually don't know about the states surrounding us because I haven't really looked into it, but that's a reality that you have to face. So it's not like a, you can't take that decision lightly. Um, and most wholesalers, it's not worth it for them to bring you on and invest their resources in for a, a one-time drop. Like you'd have to have some sort of commitment, I would think, for a quarterly drop something or something that they know that they don't need to put a lot of resources behind because that drives their profit down, really. Mm-hmm. So uh, this aspect of franchise laws, this is obviously one of the biggest things that you that you, I mean, in addition to the reputation of your, of the partner and, uh, what are some of the, and the strengths and weaknesses of which we have discussed already. But, uh, when we're talking about franchise laws, uh, can you, can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners and also, uh, how you kind of consider that when you go into a relationship with a wholesaler? Yeah. So it's a scary reality um for a small company like ours so when those laws were written it was to protect the distributors because coming out of prohibition the brewers were big and the distributors were small so what what those laws were put in place were 
to protect the distributors who invest their resources into building a brand essentially from the big brewery saying, thanks for doing that. Now we're going to go with these guys. Um, it prevents that and, and gives some protection to the wholesaler. That's, that's, you know, that was the small family guy building out his, his business. Now it's flipped. And most of the distributors are, are the big guys, right? Like, look at, look at what we talked about here. You've got CBS. Well, that's Reyes. You've got, Lakeshore, that's Budweiser and, and Hand, and you've got Glunz is independent, but in, in and you Re- have Windy City, which is Reyes, which is Reyes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, versus all of the think about what two hundred plus small breweries in, in, in Illinois. So, um, the roles are reversed, and the laws just haven't haven't really caught up um, to the reality of what what today looks like. And we all know how fast laws change. So, I don't really see that <laughs> changing anytime soon. Um, so, when we go, if we were to go look at a new market. That's the way you approach it as this isn't a, you, you have to think beyond the sale of the initial beer. You can't get overly excited about the sales figures and more think about well, the way we would do it is who do we want to be partners with? Same thing we did here, right? Like who do we want to be partners with? And not that we didn't want to be partners with, with other people that we interviewed here. We, um, it, it was, that was a very difficult process for us to select a distributor. That wasn't easy. Um, it, but I imagine it, it shouldn't be right. Cause it's, it's a, a very big decision and it's a lifetime decision i mean that's that's the the challenge of franchise laws at uh, at least in illinois and it's something that's uh unique to beer in a way we don't have them in in illinois with uh spirits or wine you can see those brands jumping around from wholesalers i mean all the time i've seen that as a retailer and so i mean that's a massive complexity for you right Oh, for sure. And that's why going to another state is not a simple, simple thing for us, right? It's, it's a big commitment. And because I want to live up to our end of that bargain, it's, it's, it's a two way street with a distributor. And and I think sometimes people forget that you want to sign with a distributor and like they sell your beer and that's it. And that's not, not really the way it works. Um, it, It is a partnership or should be. So if, and when we were to look at another state, we would go through the same process where it's like, well, who, you know, who really wants, who's excited about our brand and not just a new brand, but specifically our brand and, and why, and is it something that makes sense for them long-term as much as it does for us? And I think that as long as you, we look at it through the lens of a partnership and making sure that the expectations are discussed ahead of time, then, then we could, you know, it could work, right? Like if, if, if we want to do a splash market type thing with, with Alexi's distribution company in Indiana, and we said, hey, like, just so you know, like, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get one drop every quarter of XYZ beers. Like, get that out now and, like, commit to that's it. And that way you're not calling me after three weeks and being like, hey, I'm out of your new Pilsner. When am I getting more? Like, that's what you need to avoid because, they're, like, I'm not, what am I going to do? Take it from my home market? Like, you're, and everyone's going to be pissed. Mm-hmm. So it's a balancing act that I honestly don't have any experience in doing because we haven't done it. But that's kind of what I... I imagine that that's a significant amount of people that are in multi-states jobs is, is allocating the beer, right? Like how many, it's not, every market's not going to get the same beers and the same amount of beer. So you have to figure out how to allocate, which we used to do actually on a small level, right? With stores, it was not everybody got what they ordered because we didn't have enough beer. So, and it's not easy and people are pissed when they don't get stuff and you have to make a decision at some point though on how to allocate. Not everybody can get the same amount of beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've already kind of run into those on a, on a micro level 
so to speak, with, with when we were self-distributing with certain stores, um, it, it's not easy. And when you're, the stores didn't have lifelong relations. Well, they do, right? We hope they do. <laughs> but it wasn't a, a law that said that they had to sell our beer for life. So it's just a different ball of wax, so to speak, with, with distribution in other states. Well, I think also splash distribution is an easy way to send the leftovers or the right amount to somewhere without any consequence and without having uh, to deal with the whole negotiation of a wholesaler in, in, uh, in a new state and those types of commitments. If you can do it without perpetuity, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think that w- I think Europe was the dumping ground for a long time, actually. <laughs> we did it because it, we tagged along with another order um and when they 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 contacted us like we we were so excited to ship beer to them um we haven't done it since then but it would be kind of it would be kind of fun to see that um it's a lot of work though for not a lot lot of sales (laughs) yeah and uh the cost of those beers to the consumers there is very expensive too um let's drink uh let's drink hazy let's drink some uh, hazy ipa let's do it that you never thought you'd Into say that with, with us. Well, uh, I'm, I, I should say that I am seeing some of this language come up in the labels. There's uh, Juicy and Hazy have come up in the labels. Uh, and we've seen uh, beers like Turnstile Hopper and uh, Diggable that in some way either utilize that language or, or at least a nod to that in some way. Um just be honest with us. Where do you stand with all with uh, hazy IPAs and uh, with the, some of the notions behind it? Is this something that you shy away from? Is this something that you uh, want to embrace? I mean, historically, we've shied away from it, right? That's not a secret. Um, Brad and I don't drink them or didn't, I should say. Um, I still don't really um, for the most part, but we we shied away from it number one we didn't have capacity to really do it anyways so um we were focusing on what we were doing now we're what we're having a bar changes your business model a little bit right people come in and it it sucks telling people no we don't have a hazy or 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 a new england style ipa just but when when it really kind of clicked it's like well our whole team has to tell people because Brad and I don't want to drink them. <laughs> it's a really stupid reason to not have one when you really think about it, right? Like we were drawing a line in the sand for, for, for our own reasons and not, not for the benefit of the company maybe, right? So we mm-hmm. kind of figured out that, well, all right, people want this. People are asking for it. Just because I wouldn't drink it. Like if you want to be a big company, you, like, we exist to provide something for consumers and if our consumers are asking for something and we refuse to supply it, that's not necessarily a good thing for business. So we, we finally did do a couple, like you were mentioning, the turnstile. Diggable always kind of was one. We just changed the yeast on it, uh, but nothing else really changed there. Um, and even with this beer here, um, it's, it's spiteful IPA, actually. The recipe is identical. What we've changed was we, we do a London 3 ale yeast and we don't find it. So... Um, and then we add, well, for this specific beer, we add guava, but we've done, we've done tangerine. The turnstile hopper is, is, is a, an IPA recipe, but that's kind of where the London three is what we've been using for our hazy juicy beers. And, and it's, it's interesting, right? Like I, I still 
we, we don't do what everyone else has, has done, I think, with these beers. And I mean, mm -hmm. you guys tell me you drink more hazes than I do, I'm guessing. Um, our, ours are bitter and balanced. And mm -hmm. I don't think my issue with them is that most of them are not. And they're juicy and they taste like juice. And it's just not what I want. But that doesn't mean it's not what people want. Right. So this is kind of our interpretation of what that could look like. Um, so it is more balanced. It's got a firm bitterness to it. The guava actually adds to that because um, our tangerine version of this is, is a little sweeter, a little bit less bitter. Um, and we're split like 50-50 in the brewery for who prefers guava and who prefers tangerine. It's interesting how much a fruit can just change that. But um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not clear. Um, I struggle with it visually, but <laughs> that's because we work really hard for clear beers. But I, I also know that I am not our customer always. Um, mm -hmm. You have to understand that, I think, to grow as a business that, you you know, when we were in 400 square feet making, you know, 80 cases a week, yeah, we could make what we wanted to drink. But now we have a full team. There's 10 of us now, and and we need to – I don't want our team to constantly answer questions about why we don't do such a such an, a main – I'll call it a mainstream style now, right? Like I, my barometer is always my corporate friends. When, when Like when they bring me new beers, quote-unquote, that are not new and certainly in, if you're in the industry you know about them but like once they start hitting the haze then it's like all right like it's it's here it's not going anywhere right we could talk about seltzer too like that's the same idea right right um they're not going anywhere so if we're a brewery trying to do different styles we should try it we should try our version of this right like this is a new style we shouldn't be afraid of it or it's not even the right word we shouldn't be so anti that we we don't try it if we're brewers and this is a popular style, like, yeah, we should brew one and try and see what our take on it looks like. And, and that's kind of where we landed here. And it, it's, it's our first hazy. Yeah. Well, I, I think in a sense you get uh, some signature characteristics of Spiteful in this beer. And I think that's where things can really go awry with the, with, um, mainstream, or I would argue there's a contemporary aspect to them, and I tend to label them as contemporary styles, but uh, and not in the way that you go to the Museum of Contemporary Art and you look at contemporary <laughs> art. There's more originality to that. Uh -huh. uh, that being said, I think that there is a balance, and there, there are characteristics to this beer that you do find in other spiteful beers. You're not letting the styles this style in particular dictate who you are. You're imposing who you are on this beverage. Exactly. And yeah. that's what I think was the hurdle it took us to kind of like, how do we do it in our way? Um, <clears throat> Calvin's been asking us for this for a, a long time, uh, <laughs> but always with that exact caveat, he goes, well, I think we can do one that's not just a copycat of every other style out there, but we could do it our way. And he, he's like, it's going to taste great. Mm. And I got to, I got to admit I'm not a huge fan of the tangerine version of this. I love the guava version of this. So uh, it's, and it's, it's, I'm, but my palate's changing too, right? Everybody's palate changes. So mm -hmm. what I was drinking four years ago when I was anti hazy, um, it, it shifts a little bit and yeah, visually it's always going to bother me. <laughs> I think it's going to bother anyone <laughs> that, that strives for a, a classic clear beer. Um, but it, but they're not, 
easy to like make necessarily like everybody you know some people say like well it's just easy it's, it's no different than any other ipa um in terms of like difficulty to make right to me to us anyways um it's still challenging it's not you know you're not just dumping a bunch of hops or to make it cl cloudy like there's still a lot of craft that goes into this um and other people's too i'm not saying that just about ours i'm saying like it's hazy as a style that has evolved into a our kids kids will be talking about hazy ipa is a classic beer style mm -hmm. maybe well, maybe have we been over this hump before with adjunct stouts I, I mean those are still still around right i think i mean the pastry stouts are still a pretty big thing well i mean you've won a medal for a for a pastry stout right we didn't call it that it wasn't called that at the time no but, but <laughs> no but uh what i'm saying is that there's actually like a chronological difference here between your barrel aged beers, uh, such as um, like Choco Caliente, for example, if it's in a barrel, th there's something different about the construction of those beers versus a beer like a stout that has lactose and cocoa nibs. And uh, it, those, these are both adjunct stouts by definition in some way. Sure. But the construction of those beers is entirely different. Very different, and I think that specific example you bring up, our, our Caliente beers, is the the styles move past what that beer is, right? So now that like to us that beer is balanced and drinkable, and there's nuance in it. Um, the the pastry styles of today, people want to get punched in the face with flavor, and that's just not what that beer is. So it's interesting to kind of watch how the market changed. And it's and people still love that beer, but the met if you look at the metals and that in Fobab and what where they've gone, they've gone very much towards the the hardcore like flavor pastry stout versus a an adjunct stout, which is what we all call them. But I mean, they were the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so palettes are shifting, and this is kind of you're right. We've been over this before. We just didn't make fun of the style last time like we did like we did with yeah. this well, one I, I mean this is kind of funny and this is actually in a way where the elite beer judge and the joe on the street are actually the same person and that is that judges are looking for really really obvious and distinct flavor profiles that are easily identifiable or easy to identify characteristics and uh, some judges I would say, uh, based on the panels that I've been in, uh, you've been in special panels though, where you drink creeks. But <laughs> yeah, I, th I but uh, you know, I've found that the the beers that have won medals are beers that are distinct and that or that the profiles are very obvious, and yes. where subtlety is second to either hitting certain notes and expectations or having something that's very obvious that's going on. And but I think that the, the common drinker is actually not that far off. No, from it's that. the same. I mean, and that's the thing. There's no one's giving you an, a medal for subtlety. Um, that's not what certain categories are, right? I mean, it's, this is what the expectations are, which beer does that the best. And if you put peanut butter on your description, it, People want it to taste like peanut butter. I mean, mm -hmm. you're right. The, the judges expect that, but then also the, the general drinker on the street, like if they see that, they want that. And like, we, we honestly struggle with that um, from a brewing standpoint where, where we like it to be a little bit more balanced. But if you put something like, this is a great example. Like well, how much do you, do you get 
a lot of, what's your honest take on the guava in this beer? This is a perfect time to ask this question. No, I mean, I think yeah. guava is an integrated feature of this beer. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't slap you in the face, and it's not a guava juice that happens to be beer. Right. It's, no, not particularly. It's No, you're good. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that I think that... You get guava, but you also uh, get the aroma and you get the flavor of the other hops that are in this beer. Definitely. And it, it, it was like you were saying, it's very balanced. You know, the, the bitterness comes through. That is not a feature of this style of beer, typically. It, it's very juice forward. They're sweet. They're, it's a, I would almost equate it to like a calcium type um, body and texture. This doesn't have that. No, and, it doesn't. And uh, the guava to me is is great, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's there, but you can taste the other elements of what's in there. Someone on on the street that might see this label and see this guava, they might expect more of guava with zero hint of beer in there, and that's not their fault. That's just that's what their expectations are. So it's that's when I, so when I say we struggle with that, like we tend to balance our beers more than like if you put a fruit on the beer some people expect it to just taste like that fruit Mm -hmm. and like we have a blonde ale with peach too and it's the same thing like if you look at some of the the feedback people are like well i want more more peach or i want more guava but it's like well then then go get a peach freaking Lacroix. um right it's not the same to me uh or to us and but those expectations of the of the going back to your judge is the same as the as the person on the street. It's yeah, you put you have to be careful how you set expectations on a label. I think too um, another example that you guys do is your Rattler. Most people are used to uh, who, who's the Stiegel yeah, Stiegel, and um, yours is more beer forward. It's it's it drinks like a pilsner with a little bit of grapefruit added, right? Tangerine. And tangerine. My mistake. Yes. Um, no, we house make a tangerine soda and blend it with our lager, and it's it. Yeah, you get it's both. Um, it, it's great. I, I prefer it because it's it's way more balanced than than a Stiegel, you know, where it's just like grapefruit juice. This you can tell you're drinking a beer. A beer, yeah. I mean, to me, drinkability goes hand in hand with how much sweetness is perceived on the finish. To me, a, a sweet, the sweeter the drink, it's not even just beer, right? Like it's, it's wine, it's dessert wine. Like there's some dessert wines out there that are just they're terrible because all I get is sugar and I, I don't personally enjoy that. So to me, drinkability is a drier finish, uh, something that you want to keep reaching for, which is why I don't drink a lot of hazy and juicy IPAs because they are too sweet. I get beyond four ounces and I can appreciate them for what they are, but I don't need 16 ounces of that. Like mm-hmm. I wanted something that finishes a little drier, has a little refreshing quality to it. And that's kind of what we tried to do with this, right? Is is this is our version of a hazy where yeah, it's hazy and it's got that 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 softer quality from the London Ale three, but still beer. Totally. Do you think it's part of your I, I don't know if I want to call it a responsibility, but maybe um uh, somewhat of your prerogative to not push your taste influence out there, but kind of uh, just show people kind of another way of drinking these style of beers, something that you more align with. Do you yeah, feel like- that's exactly what Alexi was saying. I mean, mm-hmm. it's this is not us conforming to us, pushing a, a style onto ourselves. It's us pushing ourselves into a style. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's important for us because that makes us us, right? And mm-hmm. not 
just generic beer. Not that other people are making generic beer. I don't mean that to sound negative, but we 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 have a brand and we have a a flavor profile that I think you can find it, whether you're drinking our Pilsner or our our new hazy IPA or our regular IPA. I think you you know you can tell that it's a spiteful beer. Um, we hope, anyways. I mean that that's that's what we're going for. Definitely. One day I got married. <laughs> And a beer was presented to me. The label was phenomenal. It had both of our cats on the label, on the on their preferred blanket with the background, which my wife had illustrated. Uh, that was a part of the wedding invitation. It was the most thoughtful wedding gift ever, and it was also the most enormous secret uh, that has ever been kept around me. And it involves Spiteful, the brewery that made the beer, and uh, Sam, who's sitting next to me, <laughs> and Bryn, who uh, has created all the episode artwork uh, that you see. I know that I had discussed having a beer at my wedding that was my beer. And how did this come together? Uh, well, okay, so let's start from the beginning. It was uh, Bryn's original partner, Hoku, who came up with the just concept of this because you and I had talked when you were getting married for quite a while. You wanted to do quite a few beers out of the gate. I probably wanted 50 beers yeah, on draft yeah, you that wanted, I had made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds about That right. was the original concept, and I was like, oh, it would be a cool idea to throw you know one beer in there that we did for you and just make it a surprise. Um, and that idea kind of died off, but then Hoku brought it back to Bryn's attention. Um, and so then I believe it was around November, December that Bryn brought it to my attention, um, that this would be a cool idea. And at that point, I think it was still in your mind. You wanted to have three beers. You were down from the 50, but it was still three. Um, and we were like, cool, we'll be one of one of four. Like, that's still an awesome wedding gift. And at that point, when Bryn had contacted me, because Bryn wanted to be a part of the artwork, and Hoku was kind of helping at that point, too. Um, but Bryn didn't know anything about brewing or anything like that. So she's like, can you just come up with uh, your concept, flavor profiles, and all that? And I was like, fuck, yeah, I would love to do that. So we reached out to you, mm -hmm. Jason, and um, the concept was to be modeled after Terrace Bulba. And um, which is my favorite beer. Favorite beer, without a doubt. It's from, from De La Sen. <laughs> De La Sen. Um, so we float the idea. You guys were pretty down right out of the gate, um, yeah. which was awesome. And um, <laughs> so this was November, December. Uh, Beer obviously does. It takes a while, but it doesn't take six months to produce. So, flash forward four or five months, and we're in May, and I start floating some recipe ideas your way, and you were really integral in helping me kind of navigate actually making a beer because this was something. As much as I've appreciated and learned about it from Alexi, you were really helpful in uh, actualizing how to make a beer. Um, can you kind of help me um, kind of How articulate? did you take his idea yeah. <laughs> and put it on paper to where it made sense <laughs> on your little kit? Yeah. Uh, so it started with getting a one of 
the beers, right? In question that you wanted to model after, right? So mm -hmm. like, that's how we approach, like when we did our Pilsner, right? We went and bought like eight German Pilsners and just sat around and drank them. Sounds horrible. It was not a bad <laughs> night. Sounds like that sucked. <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's what you do though, right? For inspiration when you're creating a recipe is like, that you, you had in your mind what you wanted, right? Mm -hmm. So our job was to then take that and figure out how to make it. Um, and you were very good at describing what you wanted and how you wanted the taste and, and look and all that stuff. So it was easy, honestly, working with you because you gave us information as opposed to just saying, I want a beer, which is like, okay. <laughs> um, so it was fun that it's always fun to kind of mimic a beer that's already out there, but kind of make it your own, mm -hmm. right? Like we don't have access to their ingredients and their yeast strain and whatnot, but that's Although kind we of, did, we did try to propagate the the terrace bolo yeast. That is, yeah, that's not easy. <laughs> no, and um, you didn't try to build special tanks either. No, we did not. <laughs> they went in regular. I'm tanks. really disappointed. <laughs> but it, it it's what's kind of fun about the project is it shows that you can do that. You can kind of mimic something and put your own spin on it. Like I always joke, as close as we are to half acre, if if they gave us Daisy Cutter and we gave them Spitefly PA as a recipe and they brewed it exact that would taste different right just by the nature that it's their system and our system versus our the way everything is done so um it, we knew that it was never going to be a copy right but i don't think that's what you wanted either you wanted it to be like a, a an influence on mm. how we create something that would be similar so um it's basically just tasting through it figuring out what flavors you wanted that, from it that you liked and then trying to back into the recipe that way Totally. Yeah, I remember um, I I'd never really worked with um, brew spec pages or anything like that. And uh, after we had tasted you out on Terrace Bulba and the crew, um, you encouraged me actually to go and try out these brew spec sheets. And I did. And I worked with a bunch of different malts and hops and yeasts. And uh, I eventually just came to you with a sheet on a small scale. And you were like, this is an awesome start. And you kind of modified it to your system. And um, I, I believe we ended up using the malt that I had. I and, think we did. Yeah. And, um, we couldn't find the yeast strain, but we found a pretty similar one. Mm -hmm. And then, um, we basically smelled through the hops in the freezer and I kind of just gave them all a whiff and we ended up using, uh, some of those in the boil and then, um, in the after boil too. I mean, that's the thing about it is I can't tell you what you're perceiving from a flavor. That's why you needed to get involved. And like, you took it very seriously, which was very helpful for us because when you handed me that paper, like I, it helps me see what you're going for. And then like working with Brad and Claudia, like, here's what Sam's looking for. Like we could put something together that we hoped was close to what you wanted. Um, I think it worked. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, you can be the ultimate judge because this was for you. But I mean, for there, me, there this were is there a were a lot. couple things that were interesting about it. One, it was not; it did not taste like Terrace Bulba, mm -hmm. but it tasted really fucking good, which is the whole point, right? Um, <laughs> and the kind of intuition behind it was was not very far away from Terrace at all. Um, you're working with entirely different equipment than they had. So it, it, it was never going to be the same from no. the start, but mm -mm. the feeling was there and the flavor pro and like the, 
yes, the intuition points were totally there. Um, the other thing that I that I was really kind of blown away by, um, in addition to the general surprise of the whole thing, um, was that Spiteful isn't known to make Belgian-style beers or to have really attempted them in a large way. Uh, you have your Gold Coast wit, but I, I can't really point to more than 10 examples historically. Yeah, we've... we've that's probably more than we've done historically. We've done a, a few here and there. It's, I mean, honestly, it's not a style that, that sells that well. Um, so we have to be careful because the Belgians actually do a really good job of making those beers and the people that drink them tend to want those from them. They don't necessarily want American interpretation of Belgian beers. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that we have to be careful. Like when we were trying to put that together is we didn't want it to be an American version. We wanted it to be our our version of what we thought we wanted for you. Right. Uh, which by the way, was hard without asking you. Right. Um, what you wanted. <laughs> but That was the whole thing. I was like, it, there was a whole lot of dancing going on around this phase of not only trying to keep it a secret, but making this a reality was, um, uh, externally questioning you about certain flavor profiles without you realizing it. When we were tasting beers together, when we worked at the same restaurant, um, I would, you know, inquisitively, ask, oh, what do you like about this one when we were trying new beers? And, you know, kind of taking those things to heart without yeah. you trying to we realize had a, it. We had a similar <laughs> issue with the fact that we made other beers together um, and you would come check on said beer every now and then. <laughs> and we used to have to, like, hide the brew sheets for the wedding beer because we, I, I know you and you're going to see anything Belgian on our sheets and immediately start asking us about it. And we had no idea what we were going to say. So I think we just moved the sheet or we put something else up there. So like, if you saw it, you wouldn't be the wiser because if you had saw any, even no matter what we called it, as soon as you saw what was on, what was in it, you would have immediately asked about it. So it was tricky to hide it from you. There you guys, there. you guys did really, really well. Oh, uh, thank you. That was a fun project to work on. And it was, uh, it, it's, I mean, that's half of why we, you know, the fun of what we get to do, right? Like it's stuff like that. We're not just a mini Budweiser, right? Like we get to have fun and do special projects like that and work with, with people that create something that none of us ever thought we'd be doing, but it was mm -hmm. a fun project and it, I thought it tasted great. Um, not the same, but it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't supposed to necessarily be the same, just supposed to be enjoyable and and have a nod towards what your favorite beer was right and and i think that there's a certain level of knowing that yvonne debat has that no one's going to make beer like him right but i think that that's why that beer is one of my favorites or if not my favorite but the right. attempt to go after it and to uh impose your own sensibilities as a producer and for you uh, Sam, to take into consideration my my, uh, my preferences as far as flavor, or at least getting to know why that beer is important, and then smashing all that together mm -hmm. uh, is arguably much harder than Yvonne Debat making another another batch of uh, Terrace Bulba at this point. At totally. this point, maybe, but it was fun. It was. It was a lot of fun. And there's no one else I would have rather done it with. Like, you guys were... Well, thank you. Forefront of my mind. Thank like, you. It was, it was, we were happy to do it and it was, it was a lot of fun and it was 
trying to give you, you know, I, we wanted you to be the driver as well too, right? Not just tell us, make a copy of this, which is why mm. I encourage you to do that stuff. So it, you, you had a better understanding of what you wanted for that beer as well. And then, so it was kind of a combination of all three of us sitting here right now and how we interpreted it. And that's, that's kind of, uh, and I think Claudia actually ultimately made the yeast selection. So yeah. Um, Thank you, just, Claudia. It was a, it was a really cool, cool project. It was. Yeah. Would love to do another badge sometime. Maybe. <laughs> we can. <laughs> we don't have to. It was good though. I definitely love that beer. Till then, bottoms up. Yeah, bottoms absolutely. Up.